This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to the Knowledge at Wharton podcast. I'm Rachel Kipp, Associate Editorial Director of the Knowledge at Wharton website. Sharing platforms like Airbnb and Uber are disrupting a number of different industries, but they're also creating a lot of policy disruption. New research from Wharton's Sarah Light asked the question of what role should the federal government play in regulating these platforms? Sarah, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. What was the inspiration for this research? Um, the inspiration for this research was um, was kind of multifaceted. I, uh, being at Wharton, being a law professor at Wharton, I'm constantly asking questions about what the relationship is between law and business, because I think it's really important for business school students to understand the legal and regulatory environment in which they're operating. And so there are a lot of different visions of what the relationship between the two is from the kind of most cartoonish caricature view that says that business firms passively receive legal rules dictated from above, and that's kind of a very compliance mindset. What I wanted to look at in this research is um, what happens when business innovation leads to regulatory change. What are the kinds of business innovations that lead to regulatory change, and how should regulators respond? And this has come up with a lot of these sharing platforms of how to regulate them. Why is it important to make a distinction when we talk about this between local regulation and federal regulation? Well, there are a number of different issues. So um, there are really two important questions to think about when we're thinking about how to regulate business innovation or technological innovation. The first question is, what should legal rules look like? And then the second question is, what regulator who should get to decide what those legal rules look like. So it could be the federal government, it could be the states, it could be local governments. One of the reasons why it's important in the sharing economy context in particular is because we have the aggregated impact of so many local actions that things that were once considered local in nature are beginning to have an impact nationwide. So if you think about the kind of incumbent industries of taxis or hotels, those tend to be regulated at the local level by a local or municipal taxi and limousine commission or by a local zoning board that sets rules on where hotels are allowed to locate and restrictions on short-term rentals. When you have the scale, the scaling up that Airbnb or Uber and Lyft have created, um, these are potentially national issues in scope. Now, you you argue in the paper that the sharing platforms actually have kind of an uneasy relationship with traditional local government. Could you explain why? Sure. So I think that the sharing platforms... I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually limit the claim just to local government. I would say that sharing platforms um, are a form of kind of combined business and technological innovation that upend existing rules designed with a different vision of the economy in mind. So um, in the in one of the papers, which is a, a piece that I wrote with Eric Bieber, J.B. Rule, and Jim Salzman, um, we kind of try to unpack the different ways in which sharing economy platforms disrupt policy. And we've come up with kind of four primary ways. So the first way in which um, the sharing economy or, frankly, business or technological innovation can lead to policy disruption is through what we call an end run. 
So an end run is a situation in which, notwithstanding similarities to the incumbent industry, the innovative business argues that it is not subject to regulations governing the incumbent. So this is basically Uber saying, we're not a taxi. You shouldn't require us to get medallions to operate in New York City. The second type of uh, policy disruption that we talk about is what we call an exemption. So this is a case in which there is existing law and the innovative business fits into an explicit legal exception. But it raises the same kinds of policy considerations that the legal regime was originally designed to address. So as an example of an exemption, I would talk about Airbnb. So um, under federal civil rights laws, both the Civil Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act, there are rules that say that hotels are not allowed to discriminate um, and uh, landlords are not allowed to discriminate in renting out apartments, so hotels and apartments, um, on the basis of race, gender, religion, etc., And those are very strong norms um, about preventing discrimination. But those laws have express exceptions for a homeowner renting out space in their home. And the reason for that exception is that, um, you know, one could imagine the scenario where I as a woman, should I be required to rent out a couch to a man who wants to sleep there if that raises privacy concerns or something like that? The challenge, of course, is when you have Airbnb, which now is renting out more rooms per night than many major hotel chains, you've scaled up the nature of this exemption in a way that it is having the same negative public interest effects of potentially discriminating against people um, that the Civil Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act were originally designed to prevent. So that's what we would call an exemption. The third type of policy disruption is what we would call a gap. This is where there's literally no existing regulatory regime. The thing is so new um, that nothing clearly applies. And so that would be something like automobiles at the turn of the century. The final category of policy disruption that we articulate is a solution. Um, this is the idea in which an innovator solves a regulatory problem but may be blocked by overinclusive legal rules. So I think there are two real examples of this. One is distributed solar generation, um, which uh, is potentially blocked by existing legal rules governing utilities um, in many states. And the second example is the idea that Tesla wants to forward integrate to sell its cars directly to customers. Many state laws actually prohibit auto manufacturers from direct sales to consumers out of a uh, concern to protect the franchise operations that sell major uh, the major auto manufacturers' vehicles. Um, Tesla wouldn't be undercutting its franchises. It doesn't have any franchises, but these laws would potentially block those direct sales. It helps Tesla, but it hurts everybody else. Exactly. Now, what are, what is the role of the federal government here? How do we figure out where the federal government should step in and where it should back off and let the local governments take the stage? Sure. So um, I think that there are really three primary areas with respect to the sharing economy, at least, in which the federal government should be playing a role. Um, one relates to anti-discrimination, a second relates to privacy, and the third relates to the kind of general diffusion of policy experimentation by state and local government actors. So um, 
the example that I gave about Airbnb and the national anti-discrimination laws, we have anti-discrimination laws at a national level for a reason. And when we're thinking about the hotel industry or when we're thinking about um, uh, rides in vehicles, these are classic examples of interstate commerce. So if, in fact, as some emerging empirical scholarship is demonstrating, these platforms um, mimic or amplify discriminatory sentiment in the United States, um, then there's a concern that that uh, failing to regulate them at the national level will interfere with interstate commerce. So um, I think those are national anti-discrimination norms that that need to um, address the problem. The second area relates to privacy and security. So um, when we're thinking about things like connected cars or um, uh Customer privacy as it's, you know, you provide a whole lot of information to Uber, you provide a whole lot of information to Lyft when you sign up on their platforms. Um, They have access to a lot of information that you're not providing, but simply by tracking your movement. So a very well publicized kind of sad example was a few years ago when it became known that Uber had something called God View where it was tracking where people um, were taking an Uber on a Friday night um, and then uh, figuring out where they were going on a Saturday morning to track people's dating behavior. Um, And this led to articles in the press and people were very concerned about this. Um, That's the sort of information that it doesn't depend on whether you live in, you know, Miami or New York. Generally speaking, consumers want their privacy protected. So it strikes me that that also is a national interest. And then the final area where the federal government, I think, should play an important role relates to the diffusion of kind of policy experimentation. So many people use the phrase that the states are laboratories of experimentation. This comes from a Supreme Court opinion by the late, great Justice Brandeis. Um, But obviously, there's a lot of experimentation going on right now um, in cities and and municipal governments around the country. Some are partnering with Uber and Lyft um, in order to provide uh, access to public transportation. So they'll provide a discount if you take an Uber ride that drops you off at a regional transit hub. This is something that a number of of municipal governments have done. Um, Where there are policy successes, it's not necessarily always clear that those policy successes can be known um, by other municipalities around the country. And so I think the federal government should be playing a kind of coordinating role to help publicize policies at the local level that are successful and possibly ones that are not successful so people don't have to reinvent the wheel. And you can find a number of stories about Uber and Airbnb and the rest of the sharing economy on the Knowledge at Wharton website, which is knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. We're here with Wharton Sarah Light, who's talking about her recent paper, which looks at regulation of this of these industries. So, Sarah, how is the federal government doing so far at this? Are they doing a good job? Is any federal government out there other than the United States doing a better job? Um, well, uh I think the federal government is kind of moving quite slowly in this regard. I think that, honestly, there's just a lot more action happening at the municipal level because um, and in some cases at the state levels, because that's often how the incumbent industries have been regulated. So just to give a few examples, um, the debate about whether Uber and Lyft should be allowed to 
come to Philadelphia or to Austin, Texas, um, many cities have had to confront that issue to make the determination about, you know, are these taxis or are these not taxis? And Uber and Lyft lobbied heavily to not face 500 different municipal rules, but rather to have this this issue resolved at the state level. So a number of states, more than a dozen, have actually passed laws um, that permit Uber and Lyft to enter the market statewide. They set uniform rules on the insurance coverage that's required. They govern the background checks and safety checks that are needed. In some cases, many of these rules actually preempt local governments from adopting additional regulations. Um, And um, with the exception of maybe rules about who gets to pick up at the airport. Um, But that's kind of where the action is with respect to Uber and Lyft. And at the Airbnb level, a lot of the action is at the local level with respect to local zoning boards more than at the federal government level. I imagine it's very difficult. I mean, just the examples you gave there show that it, I mean, regulating an Uber is very different from regulating an Airbnb. And at the same time, I'm sure there's, you know, dozens of other new platforms sharing a different thing that are in their infancy right now that are going to be the next big thing. Absolutely. Which is why, of course, I like to think that uh, the theory of policy disruption with these kind of four different categories of policy disruption is really important. Because whether the regulator is the federal government or the local government or the states, um, it's important to have some guidance about how to respond to different types of policy disruption. And now you point out in the article that when something innovative is in its infancy, that who should regulate and how to regulate should be dynamic as that industry is developing. But are regulators generally comfortable with that? (laughs) Are governments? Right. So it's a really good question. Yes. So in my work, I've argued that it's really important to have a kind of adaptive, dynamic regulatory system that allows for learning and change when um, conditions warrant it. So the example that I give in the paper is that um, when we think about you know, I'm, I focus a lot on environmental law and policy. There's very little empirical research right now on the environmental impacts of Uber and Lyft. If you think about it, there's great environmentally positive potential, right? If you decide not to buy a car, I decide not to buy a car because I generally take public transportation. And if I need to get somewhere that I can't go with public transit, I take an Uber or a Lyft, then that's good for the environment. If, on the other hand, instead of taking the number 21 bus or 23 bus, whichever one it is that drops you off in front of Wharton, you just take a lift every day, um, then you're replacing public transportation with more rides. And so the question of whether Uber and Lyft are increasing or decreasing vehicle miles traveled and what their implications are for both local pollution and greenhouse gas emissions, it's not determined yet. But yet, they're out there, right? We can't leave them unregulated. So from my perspective, it's important to allow more policy experimentation, often at the local level, um, while we're gathering the empirical data about what the impacts are. And once there's more data, then maybe the regulatory approach will converge on a single solution or two solutions. But I think the experimentation is very important when there's uncertainty about what the impacts are. Now, do you feel like consumers are comfortable with experimentation in the regulatory front? Do they notice this? You know, I mean, I th- I'm i not sure how much consumers are necessarily aware of it. I mean, there was a point, you know, we're in Philadelphia. There was a point in which Uber and Lyft were illegal in Philadelphia, but they were still operating. So it doesn't – it's not necessarily the case that 
the legal regime governs what consumers do. Um, it might govern what drivers do if vehicles are impounded, as they actually were in Philadelphia a couple of years ago. The entity that I think notices is Uber and Lyft, right? So they care a great deal about what the regulatory environment is. From their perspective, uniform rules are better, less regulation, obviously better. And, you know, I'm not sharing any great insight there. But the city of Austin provides a really interesting example of how um, sort of local experimentation doesn't necessarily lead to a happy outcome, um, or maybe it leads to a very happy outcome, right, depending upon your perspective. So um, there was an effort, a push in the state of Texas to adopt a statewide rule that would preempt local and municipal governments from adopting any kind of standards res with respect to Uber and Lyft. Um, and it didn't pass. So that meant that municipal governments, local governments in Texas were allowed to experiment with their own rules. So the city of Austin insisted that Uber and Lyft drivers be fingerprinted and undergo the same kinds of criminal background checks that taxi drivers undergo. Uber and Lyft threatened to pull out if this became the law and ultimately did pull out of the city. And um, other sharing, you know, ride sharing, ride sourcing platforms entered the city shortly thereafter. Um, from the perspective of the public interest, maybe it's a very good thing that the city of Austin insisted on fingerprinting. We've obviously heard stories about unfortunate incidents involving, uh, you know, criminal activity with these platforms, just as you hear about unfortunate incidents involving criminal activity with other uh, uh, transportation um, transportation services in the country. Um, but uh, from the perspective of consumers, I think there was a lot of support for having these platforms in the city. The loss for them uh, may have been a significant one. So it, it depends a lot on what your perspective is. From my perspective, thinking about it from the viewpoint of the regulator, I think the privacy, I'm sorry, not the privacy, I think that the security interest is very important. And so if from a city's perspective, they want to insist on criminal background checks, they should be entitled to. Um, the challenge becomes when there's more of a kind of patchwork across different jurisdictions such that if you need criminal background checks and fingerprints to drive within Austin city limits, what if you pick someone up in, I don't know, San Antonio and they want to be driven to Austin, Is the car does the car have to stop at the border? Right. And I think it's also interesting because these sharing platforms in a way, because it's often an individual leveraging an individual asset, it's also put ordinary people in this position of having to be aware of regulations that maybe they'd never been aware of before. I mean, you think about Airbnb and an Airbnb host was probably surely not schooled in hotel regulations prior to becoming a host. Absolutely. Right. And so, you know, this is another example of the scaling up problem and the way in which the regulatory state is designed with a particular vision of what um, the hospitality industry looks like, right? So if there are local rules in a city that say that there must be ingress and egress, there must be a monthly inspection by a fire inspector, that makes perfect sense if you have a full-time hotel staff able to meet with your fire inspector, but that makes a lot less sense for like my aunt Florence in, you know, Peoria, who may not have the ability to to meet with a fire inspector or expend all the, the resources to meet with the same kinds of regulatory burdens that a, a hotel could. What do you think is the key takeaway of this research for policymakers as they continue to try and navigate the space? So I guess the, the key takeaway is that 
Well, there are a few key takeaways. On the who should regulate question, I think the key takeaway is that when we're dealing with something really new, experimentation is good. As we're learning more information about what the potentially negative implications of a business are that would trigger some kind of regulatory response, let's let cities and local governments and states experiment And then at a certain point, maybe some uniform rule may be more appropriate when we have more information. So I think experimentation and dynamism and adaptive learning are very good when when businesses are new. Um, On the question of how to regulate, um, the work that I've done argues that right now the law, to the extent that it is drafted in a way that is not neutral – between the incumbent industry and the innovative business, we should strive for some kind of neutrality based on the function. So if Uber acts like a taxi, even if it's organized in a different way and it uses a smartphone app and it rents cars from people on a short-term basis rather than owning fleets of vehicles, it's performing the same kinds of service and it raises the same kinds of public interest concerns as taxis. And so we should think about how to regulate them in a way that doesn't cause a massive drop in the price of medallions and essentially exclude taxis from um, from the market, nor should it exclude Uber from the market, right? We want to kind of level the playing field between them. Um, and so the research that I do focuses on how to operationalize that idea of neutrality across the two organizational forms of the incumbent and the innovator, um, while at the same time balancing the public interest concerns and the desire to promote innovation. We have time for one more question. Can you tell me what's next for this research? Um, What's next for this research? So um, I am continuing to think about uh, the the relationship between business innovation and technological innovation and the regulatory state. And so I've been working on a project on autonomous vehicles or self-driving vehicles, looking at the question of who should get to regulate? Should it be at the state level? Should it be at the federal level? Um, and um, the House and Senate have both introduced legislation that would actually preempt states from regulating in this area. So I've been looking at that and plan to continue to do that. Sarah, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. You can find all of Knowledge at Wharton's podcast articles and more on our website, which is knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. You can also find all of our podcasts on Apple's podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review because it really does help people find the show. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 